In the prologue to his commentary on the mystical theology of Dionysus, Albert describes the prerequisites of students who seek to enter into what he calls the mystical science. In scholastic fashion, the prologue of Albert sets out the main themes of the primary text by way of a comment on a biblical passage. Albert introduces the Areopagite's mystical theology with an explanation of Isaiah 45, verse 15. The biblical verse reads thus. Truly, God of Israel, the Savior, you are the hidden God. In the Vulgate, the Deus Absconditus. Glosses this passage from Isaiah 45 in the following way. I turn to text number one on your handout. This is the Tugwell, Simon Tugwell translation from the critical edition. The sort of people to whom this kind of teaching is meant to be addressed is alluded to in the word Israel, which means very straight, and a man who sees God. This reveals the twofold perfection which is required of the student of the science, clarity of understanding in order to see God, and right behavior in practice, which is how we come to such clarity or sharpness of understanding. The student should not be a child, either in years or in manners, as the philosopher says in the ethics about the student of political science. So Bernard of Clairvaux also says, it is presumptuous when impure people unworthily undertake holy reading before their flesh has been tamed and subjected to the spirit by the practice of discipline and before they have cast off and spurned the pomp and burden of the world. Albert backs up his teaching by invoking three biblical passages which complete the citation. We are still in text number one on your sheet. Once again, I quote Albert quoting scripture. To whom will he teach knowledge and whom will he make to understand this message? People who are weaned from milk and torn away from the breast, Isaiah 28. Or again, we speak wisdom among the perfect. No one with the resources merely of the human soul can grasp the things of God's spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And finally, quote, do not give what is holy to dogs, unquote, a passage from Matthew 17. End of the citation from the commentary by Albert. In this rather accessible, but also dense paragraph, Albert sets out a rigorous ascetical program, one that he considers essential in order to study fruitfully the mystical science, the science which is the very content of the book of the Areopagite entitled The Mystical Theology. Various ascetical practices are needed in order to obtain both clarity of mind and the taming of the passions. My paper primarily aims to show how Albert understands the purification of the intellect, the will, and the passions. I will give special attention to the sources and types of arguments that Albert employs to show in what way doctrine shapes spiritual practice. 
I will mostly focus on the theological corpus. Albert saw the disciplines of philosophy and theology as strictly distinct, and he considered theological contemplation to be inherently superior to philosophical contemplation. I will draw primarily from his commentary on Dionysius's mystical theology. The second key source for my paper will be Albert's commentaries on the Gospels of Matthew and John, two later works of his that have been mostly ignored by medievalists and scholars of Albert, who tend to focus on his philosophical texts. One aim of my presentation is to give a better to gain a better understanding of Albert's theological vision of man, partly in view to later controversial teachings. One thinks, for example, of Meister Eckhart's Grund or Ground of the Soul, or the semi-Eckhartian anthropologies of Henry Suso and John Towler to 14th century Dominicans. Before I proceed, I would like to clarify some key terms that I will be employing. I will be speaking of the mind, but using that term in the typical medieval Christian sense, the mens in Latin, as a reference to the whole immaterial soul, which includes the faculties of intellect and will. To refer only to the cognitive faculty, I will use the term intellect, not mind. The term affect with an A typically signals in the corpus of Albert, not an emotional disposition, but a disposition of the will or of the heart, or even the very faculty itself. The term flesh in Albert's writings generally has the Pauline sense of the human passions as disordered by sin. In other words, the passions as subject to concupiscence. My use of these terms, intellect, mind, affect, and flesh, is consistent with Albert's usage. Finally, I will employ the term senses in a way that may go somewhat beyond Albert, but that in fact is a kind of category which will function in my paper to summarize or to bring together two parts of his own thinking. First, the senses will be a term I will use in referring to the purification from disordered desire for sensible goods in the sense of concupiscence, something that Albert talks about. And I will also be using this term in relation to purification of the imagination, that is the purification of the soul from the cognitive fruit of sense experience in the imagination, namely the phantasms or representation of corporeal objects. So senses in my usage means far more and usually something different from the of sense, but they're evidently related to our sense faculties. So um, my first very brief section is really um, a kind of um, preparatory work here as we get into the heart of the matter. I'd like to go very briefly back to the very text I have already cited, text number one, Albert's use of authorities in text number one, strikes me as very instructive. First, he seeks to bring to the surface the implied teaching of Isaiah 45 on the hidden God. And it is a meaning that Albert partly brings to the surface, Isaiah 28, and the critique of the Israelites' spiritual immaturity. 
Second, Albert invokes Aristotle as he draws an analogy between the student of the mystical theology and the student of philosophy and the kind of maturity that they need. Thirdly, Albert cites one of Bernard of Thurbeau's sermons on the Song of Songs, very likely preached to his fellow monks in the Cistercian Abbey, in which Bernard explains to his brethren the hard road that they must traverse in order to obtain or attain loving union with Christ the bridegroom. Fourth, Albert appeals to St. Paul on the necessity of grace to advance in the mystical science. This theme is omnipresent in the commentary on the mystical theology. Fifth, Albert engages in Dionysian exegesis as he employs one of Jesus's more provocative and typically Jewish sayings about not giving holy things to dogs. So as to clearly distinguish between the well-disposed and the ill-disposed hearers of the teaching contained in the mystical theology. In short, Albert appeals to biblical, patristic, monastic, and philosophical sources as he develops the beginnings of a theology of contemplative ascent. He inserts himself into a long tradition of reflection on the spiritual path to God, a tradition that includes ancient pagan philosophies, ancient Christian Neoplatonism, medieval monastic theology, and other sources. And we'll see what those other sources are. It gives us a first taste of how Albert employs different uh, doctrinal traditions to articulate um, a vision of the right practice needed to obtain a higher form of contemplation. I turn to my next main section. My second main section is on the Beatitudes and the purification of the senses, and this will evidently take us to the Gospel of Matthew commentary by Albert, preached in the middle of his life, in which he, as he comments on the Sermon on the Mount, in typical fashion of many theologians through the tradition, in which he lays out a vision of contemplative ascent in a gloss on the Sermon on the Mount, especially as he is speaking of the Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter five. Albert explains that Jesus preaches this sermon on a mountain in order to teach us to ascend to God by Christ's word, a word that is, quote, the doctrine of perfection leading to happiness, end of quote. Blessed are the poor in spirit, one of the Beatitudes, which means blessed are those who seek nothing in this world, Look at text two from the sheet that you have. This is Albert speaking about the beatitude of the poor in spirit. The highest state is that beatitude, which consists in the abdication of all things, whether they be interior or exterior, from which someone may vainly consider himself sufficient. End of the quote. Here, Albert sees Christ addressing his disciples, meaning sinners who needs to undergo radical purification before they can attain this high maximum form of beatitude that is promised. To be blessed in purity of heart, one must traverse a first grade or stage, gradus in Latin, a purgation of the after effects or what Albert calls the remainders of sin, the peccati reliquies. And this process, Albert says, involves bitter Penance. Albert goes on to enumerate specific objects of purgation, such as 
a purgation of the memory and the habit of sin, the memory of sin, the habit of sin, a purgation of various thoughts and delectations, invokes St. Paul's spirit flesh anthropology, found in the letter to the Romans, chapter 7, which of course is a classic source for Augustinian theologies of concupiscence. Albert then identifies other objects of purification. This brings me to text three. We are still in chapter five of the commentary on Matthew's gospel. I quote, the second type of after effects of sin to be purified are the shadows of phantasms coming into our thoughts, phantasmatum occurrentium, which are similitudes of corporeal things pressing themselves upon us, which we habitually receive from the senses. These are the two flies that press themselves upon the sacrifice of Abraham, which flies he drove away, thereby teaching us to drive such things from the heart, because there is nothing of these in divine things. John 4, God is spirit, and those who adore him must adore in spirit and in truth. 1 Corinthians 14, I will pray in my spirit and in my mind. I will sing in the spirit and in the mind. Albert's allegorical reading of Abraham's sacrifice in Genesis 15 seems somewhat unusual. I don't think I've ever seen it before in any church father or medieval author. The Old Testament patriarch has to protect his offerings of birds laid out on an altar from pesky flies or flying insects in Latin volucres. It's unclear to me whether Albert found this exegesis in a medieval predecessor or perhaps a church father. The critical edition of the commentary on Matthew does not give any particular reference here. Albert indicates that his teaching on the mind's purification finds support in the New Testament. He quotes the response to the Samaritan woman at the well in John's Gospel saying to her that God does not so much desire prayer in a particular temple, like on Mount Sinai or Gerizim, but rather in the spiritual temple of the soul rooted in truth. The passage from 1 Corinthians takes us to the end of that letter, chapter 14, where Paul is dealing with troublesome, troubling Corinthians who are obsessed with speaking in tongues and other very evident, visible, supernatural phenomena. Albert apparently sees Paul describing here a purely spiritual, non-verbal form of prayer that he, Paul, practices, which seems to be higher as a form of prayer than speaking in tongues. Paul contrasts his prayer in the spirit to the loud and public form of praying that is speaking in tongues. For Albert, phantasms are to be driven away following the example of Abraham, for, quote, he says in our last passage, there is nothing of these in God. This phrase would please the Ariel. Note, however, that Albert's description of this purification of the mind from phantasms, which you, as you have li very likely, very certainly understood, is a crucial idea. This purification is only described somewhat briefly and a bit vaguely in this passage. It's a biblical commentary. We couldn't possibly expect him to give us a full exposition of every theme that emerges as he comments on the scriptures. 
With the help of other references to phantasms in Albert's corpus, we can fill in this lacuna and understand his doctrinal intention. As he comments on Matthew 6, verse 9, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount, Albert explains one of the petitions of the Paternoster, the Our Father. Hallowed be your name. Or also, in another translation, may your name be sanctified. Albert says that, in fact, this petition asks God to sanctify his people, to purge our earthly love, our earthly imagination, our earthly reason. This takes me to text four, where we see him describe God's purifying action. This is what he says on your sheet. <clears throat> Light arises in the serene heart. Again, tomorrow man is sanctified when phantasms and images of earthly things are excluded. End of the quote. Here, Albert refers to more than just the purification of the mind's tendency to cling to images that may lead to some temptation or a vice. Right? A large bowl of carbonara pasta would be an object of temptation in Rome on Friday of Lent. Albert also does not think that phantasms can continue to play a role in any contemplative act as long as the intellect's intention and attention is focused on the intelligible aspect represented within or by the phantasms. Let me say it again. Albert does not think that phantasms can continue to play a role in any contemplative act so long as the intellect's intention and attention is focused on the intelligible aspect tra transmitted through or represented by the phantasm. Think of a divine perfection whose imperfect similitude is found in a corporeal being. Rather, Albert thinks that at the summit of the contemplative life, at the summit, the intellect must stop using phantasms in its act of knowing. In a very Dionysian move, Albert maintains that any act of knowing must begin with phantasms, but that some acts of cognition, especially the perfect knowledge of God possible in this life, reach their achievement beyond phantasms. Later in the prologue of his Summa Theologica, perhaps his last work. Albert takes up the classic comparison of the human intellect to the night bird that mostly sees in the dark. This is very popular in 13th century philosophy. But Albert adds, this is true, he says, the intellect is like the night bird. Hence, it begins to see, it sees better through the senses, starting with visible, tangible, concrete, visible, corporeal beings. But, Albert adds, as a participation in divine light, meaning a likeness of God who is pure intellect and pure intelligibility, through the gradual separation from space and time, separation from sensible objects and things of the imagination, our minds come to rest in the contemplation of divine things. And interestingly, Albert sees a foundation for this teaching in Aristotle's ethics, in a group he calls the philosophers, and unsurprisingly, in Augustine's confessions. I should have brought you the quote for your sheet. I was just paraphrasing it for you. It's in the prologue. It's, I think, chapter three of the prologue of the text, which you can find in the critical edition. Albert's epistemological stance on phantasms receives a striking kind of illustration 
in two passages from his gospel commentaries. I have found the gospel commentaries a wonderful way to, to round out, to contextualize, to complete my understanding of Albert uh, because he gives me nuances and emphases that I do not always find, that I do not find in other texts. I think they're quite valuable. As he glosses the beginning of chapter 13 in Matthew's gospel, Albert explains why Jesus preached in parables, text five. Here, he, Jesus, teaches the evangelical truth in the form of doctrine proportioned to us. It is all parabolic. For the human intellect conjoined to space and time does not understand well, as Dionysus says, which similitudes of bodies are not adapted to spiritual things, for man does not receive purely spiritual things, except for the spiritual intellect of, quote, the perfect, who, as it is said in Hebrews 5, by habit train the senses to discern between good and evil. End of the quote. The verse from Hebrews 5 contrasts immature Christians who are only disposed to receive basic teachings of the faith, like little children in need of milk, with mature Christians ready to partake of solid food. So what I'm doing is going back to Hebrews and getting a sense of what the author of Hebrews is doing there to have a better sense of what Albert is intending by invoking this half verse. He's invoking a whole teaching from Hebrews. In his parables, Christ recounts many simple examples from daily life, daily experience, as he teaches the gospel in what we might call symbolic form. This genre of parables befits the intellect immersed in space and time. This is a typical expression of Albert that we find throughout his corpus. The reference to Dionysus alludes to the first chapter of the celestial hierarchy, which is a very important part of that corpus. It is certainly, it is of course part of the uh, it is a text that Albert, of course, commented upon since he commented on every single line of Dionysus the Areopagite, even the epistles. In the first chapter of the celestial hierarchy, the Areopagite famously asserts that we can only begin our contemplative ascent through the sacred veils given by God. Now, for Dionysus, the veils are corporeal beings, the text of scripture, the symbols of the liturgy. They're the beginning of contemplative ascent. They go together. In his commentary on the celestial hierarchy, Albert calls symbolic communication con-natural or proportioned to the human being. Through the multiplicity of sensible realities, God's light brings us back step-by-step step, to his simple unity. This classical Dionysian theme will find frequent expression in Albert's philosophical and theological works, and then enjoy a long heritage in the Rhineland School of Mystics. Though we also will need to ask, and something which Alessandro Beccarisi and others are beginning to ask and to study, what part of the Corpus of Albert was actually received by these Rhineland mystics? So I've just illustrated the principle of Albert, of how he defends or justifies or reinforces or confirms his notion of knowing ultimately without phantasms by his interpretation of the function of parables. Now I turn to the second justification he gives, the second illustration of this epistemology. It takes me to the commentary on the Gospel of John, chapter 16. We're in the Last Supper discourse. It is 
Jesus' long goodbye to the apostles. In chapter 16, he prophesies his ascension to heaven after his resurrection. Albert explains that Jesus' physical departure by his ascension brings spiritual benefit to the apostles because they derive much sensible consolation from the visible presence of his body. And this consolation ultimately impedes their contemplative ascent to God. His visible corporeal presence misdirects their desire to earthly realities, even though the sensible object in question is utterly pure and holy. It's Christ's sacred humanity. As he glosses John 16, verse seven, Albert presents the following a fortiori argument. Text number six, quote, one ought to think that if the son of God's carnal presence impedes the reception of the Holy Spirit, how much more does carnal affection in us impede the coming of the Holy Spirit? End of the quote. This is a stark contrast, I think. Interestingly, in the passages from his gospel commentaries that I have considered so far, Albert seems to be doing more than just applying a clear, fully developed philosophical idea about epistemology and contemplation that he's worked out with various philosophical sources like Aristotle and Dionysus and the Liber de Causes, the Book of Causes, which transmits to us by way of the Arabic world of Baghdad in the eighth century, the Proclam teaching that also stands behind Dionysus the Areopagus, the Liber de Causes. I am hypothesizing, I think I have some reasons to hold that there is more going on in Albert simply taking a neat philosophical idea. He's come up with a dialogue with these diverse philosophical strands and now applied it in a theological context. Albert develops the vision of man's intellect that also neatly fits into his biblical exegesis. That doesn't mean that Albert must have consciously considered scripture a major source for his teaching that the intellect's act begins with phantasms, but should ultimately end beyond and without phantasms. However, the direct, direct and indirect links between his anthropology and scripture suggest that the sources of, sources of Albert's epistemology may be more subtle than we are led to think. At the very least, we can say that Albert finds confirmation of his anthropology in his reading of scripture. And I think that is worthy of note. Also, we should not simply rush to categorize Albert's epistemology, speaking again of the intellect ultimately functioning without phantasms. We should not simply categorize it neatly and easily as platonic and then quickly contrasted with Thomas Aquinas's Aristotelianism. Recall that for Aquinas, every cognitive act must ultimately return to phantasms, at least in this life. I give at least two reasons to hesitate before drawing this kind of contrast between a supposed Platonism of Albert and Aristotelianism of Thomas, granting all along that there is a good deal of Platonism in Albert, the problem being that Platonism is hardly a univocal reality. Why hesitate? Two reasons. First, the biblical commentaries give abundant attention to the literal sense of scripture. Albert consistently ponders in great detail the persons and events described in the history of Israel, 
as, as he's commenting, for example, various prophetic books, gives great attention to the details, the individuals, the events in the gospel stories. He commented on every single gospel. And he's very attentive to the humanity of Christ and his particular saving deeds. Also, interestingly, the same commentaries on scripture include relatively few disputed questions where the author pauses the gloss of the text to take up a particular doctrinal theme in a more systematic fashion. I would contrast this type of exegesis with the theology of Dionysus, who has relatively little interest in the humanity of Christ. I would also contrast it with Meister Eckhart, who seems to have a very limited interest in the historical deeds of Christ. So this causes me great hesitation in simply labeling Albert uh, a Platonist when it comes to his epistemology. Secondly, Albert's Eucharistic treatise on the body of the Lord, recently translated into English, displays intense interest in the meaning of the sacramental signs which is actually rather Dionysian, isn't it? While the book does not present a fully developed theology of contemplation, which it never sought to give in that context anyway, I would argue that the book on the body of the Lord implies an anthropology as it places immense value on the place of the senses in the contemplative life. We need to remember that Platonism has various strands and two of the major strands which come down to the 13th century it should be mentioned for now the platinian platonism that would inform augustine especially in his youth but then the proclan dionysian platonism which is much closer to albert's project and has different approaches to symbols and the function of the senses i've completed my second long section on the purification of senses with a focus on the theme of the phantasms. I now turn to my last major theme, the purification of heart and intellect. First, I will briefly say something on how Albert treats these together. Then if there's time, I will say something on the purification of the heart, although here I have a certain liberty and confidence that I can be very brief because I know that uh, Dr. Marianne Schlosser in tomorrow's keynote address will intends to, plans to address um, this theme among other themes uh, as it emerges in uh, St. Albert. So Albert on the purification of heart and intellect, of will and intellect. The work of grace, progress in the virtues and aesthetical training gradually allow the student of the mystical science to begin to diminish concupiscence, the passions, and to free himself from the constant need of phantasms. That is over time, the disciple who enters into the mystical theology finds a diminished pull of the passions to sensible goods, the plate of Carbonara in Rome, and relies less on the mode of teaching found in the parables, so as to become more receptive to a simpler kind of contemplation where he's gazing upon purely intelligible realities, divine unity, divine goodness. Think of the great divine names that are at the center of Dionysius's divine names that Albert commented upon with such great care and which informed his whole account of the mystical theology. 
The contemplative is thus evermore disposed to, quote, turn inward, unquote, to turn inward in prayer, for example. This is an expression, of course, which you realize is omnipresent in the philosophical and theological traditions on contemplation before Albert. However, this training of the passions and of the imagination does not suffice. One has to go further. Albert likes to speak of the purgation of affect and intellect together. He likes to speak of them in the same moment. He does this several times in the commentary on the Gospel of John, and he does it in other texts, for example, in the commentary on the mystical theology. You could also see it in other places, for example, chapter six, the commentary on the prophet Isaiah and the marvelous vision of the throne room. In the first chapter of the commentary on the Dionysian mystical theology, Albert explains that philosophers, meaning those without faith, cannot receive the mystical science, which is a striking statement for someone who pioneered the intense study of Aristotle by commenting on his entire corpus and celebrated the power of reason through so many of his philosophical works. That, Albert says, the philosopher cannot attain the mystical science. Albert states that those who take up this sacred discipline advance not just by the use of reason, but also a certain experiential knowledge of God, which brings me to text eight on your sheet. It is not the learned who are instructed, but rather people are prepared for the divine teaching by the purgation of their hearts and minds from errors and concupiscences, unquote. By implication, the perfect purification needed to obtain the height of contemplation in this life is only possible by grace so that a person without faith cannot attain it. A few lines before our passage, Albert invokes the obscure figure of Hierotheus, H-I-E-R-O-T-H-E-U-S in the English transliteration from the Greek, which is of course the real or mythical teacher of Dionysus that he talks about, who is an exemplar, a great example of union with God in ecstasy, who is connected to the uh, patiens divina, the suffering of divine things that is so important for Aquinas and his theology of spiritual perfection contemplation. Hierotheus is said to have enjoyed a deep experience of divine things and to have sensed the sweetness of divine inspiration. This is toward the beginning of the commentary on the mystical theology. We're still in the first chapter here. And uh, it brings into the text a figure that Dionysus doesn't mention there. He takes it from chapter four of the divine names um, and uh, uses him to, I think, uh, begin to discuss the topic of the experience of God. I do not know of any sufficient study of the experience of God in grace, according to St. Albert. And that doctrine uh, has a rich expression in several texts, including the much understudied uh, treatise on the body of the Lord. On the so I've briefly mentioned this couplet of affect and intellect, of will and intellect and their joint purification. I will say something very brief on the purification of the heart and then turn in Dominican fashion to the intellect. Um, chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel. 
Jesus explains the great commandment to love God with one's whole heart, soul, and understanding. It's a quote of Deuteronomy 6. Or is it 4? Anyway, we have it in our Compline liturgy at Saturday night. Albert's commentary on Matthew glosses this verse, verse 37 of Matthew 22, with the help of St. John Chrysostom. I have not included it on your sheet. You can find it in the critical edition. Albert teaches that loving God with one's whole heart and mind means that the memory always holds within itself the knowledge of God, that it forgets nothing of God and directs every delight of the heart to him leaving no delight in creatures that runs contrary to the love of God. This total love means giving him all of one's senses and seeking him in every thought. I think we can find many echoes of this idea, which is certainly not original to Albert, in a number of later Dominican theologians and preachers. And it's important to see it because even though in Dionysian and very Dominican fashion, Albert focuses his discussion of contemplation and union with God on the intellect. There is this uh, crucial teaching on the will, on charity, on the affect with an A, which is always in the background. And here we have some explicit discussions of it. So I will turn to my very last subsection of my last section, which is the purification of the intellect. And I'll be respectful of the time and leave some space for discussion. The most original and developed doctrine of purification for contemplative ascent comes in the treatment of the intellect's ascent to God. So following Dionysus, he tends to focus his discussion of this theme by abstracting from the heart. So Dionysus, for example, has a theology of ecstatic love that finds expression in chapter four of the divine names, but is hardly explicitly present in the mystical theology. It is essentially assumed Albert does something rather similar. The two must go together. Much of the commentary on the Dionysian mystical theology treats the purification of the intellect. And we find confirmation of this very early teaching of Albert. We're dealing with, we're looking at the year 1250. We find confirmation that he holds it later in various places, including his biblical commentaries and his unfinished Summa in the authentic first book that we know is for certain authentic and by the hand of Albert. What I will do in the next two minutes is summarize a couple of ideas that I have articulated at some length in my book, The uh, Mystery of Union with God. And then I would like to focus on some texts which I was not able to treat there which I can now contemplate better and more clearly with a clear, more purified mind, thanks to my work on the biblical commentaries of St. Albert. Albert's work on the mystical theology follows upon his commentary on the divine names. It's precisely the order of study between these two books that the Areopagite intended. Albert distinguishes between these texts by assigning the theology of God's affirmative names to the divine names, and by assigning the theology of negations, the negative names, to the mystical theology. So, having learned about God's perfections through his causal activity, a perfection manifest to us, recalled to us, shown to us by the positive divine names of scripture and philosophy, 
rightly interpreted by the good scholastic teacher, names such as being, good, beautiful, one. After this, Albert seeks to lead the reader into perfect contemplation by the intellect's final purification, which principally occurs by the proper grasp of the negative names of God, that he's so far beyond creaturely goodness that he's not good, the dialectic of Dionysus. This path presumes, this path of negation, of contemplative ascent through negative theology, presumes that both teacher and student, both of them, have faith, which is a gift Albert likes to attribute to faith, the power to purify the mind. He says this in various places, for example, in the commentary on Matthew chapter six and elsewhere. Several passages in Albert's commentaries on Dionysus interpret the intellect's ecstasy, a favorite theme of the Areopagite, the noose going beyond itself, outside of itself, as an ascent to God by faith. This teaching goes hand in hand with the German Dominican's firm conviction that true doctrine sanctifies the intellect. Previously, I argued in my work on the commentary on the mystical theology that Albert's understanding of the intellect's perfect union with God in this life must involve our own created act of cognition. I have shown that the bulk of his comments that, that describe the ascent by negations, God is not being, God is not good, etc. This ascent is a qualification of the affirmative names in such a way that the positive attributes of God are still pondered in some way, but with a certain obscurity and indeterminacy. The same commentary on the mystical theology gives striking expressions as well where Albert insists that the contemplative, at the contemplative summit, the gaze of the human being upon God is still mediated by supernatural effects of grace and glory. Given the previous and subsequent traditions of mystical theology, I think that's a very important point. All of these elements that I've just mentioned in the last minute point all of them, all of these elements of the theology of union and in, by negations in Albert signal a certain, even considerable modification of Dionysian apophatism, even if Aquinas is even less apophatic. This brings me to my last two themes. Maybe I'll just treat one of them and for the sake of time to round out my consideration. Here I'm going beyond the work in my The primary and essential divine light that makes mystical theology possible remains somewhat identified in the work on the mystical theology. Albert describes it, for example, in one place as a habitual gift and using various texts of the young Albert, I have argued that it must be the light of faith. In other words, the mystical theology is proposed to all believers, not just a few. But this does not mean that faith and charity and initiation into God's positive and negative names normally suffice for contemplative ascent because a few passages in the commentaries on the mystical theology and on the epistles of Dionysus also refer to a supernatural noetic light that seems not to be habitual. In other words, contemplative ascent normally involves not just the knowledge enabled by faith and study, not just the knowledge derived 
by studying God's names properly, affirmatively and negatively, but also with the help of other supernatural light. Here, I will only mention one of them. I've got two or three more texts on the sheet, but I will, for the sake of time, focus on one. The first chapter of the Areopagite climaxes with the celebrated passage of Moses in the dark cloud on Mount Sinai. Albert devotes three disputed questions to these three lines. He knows that this is terribly important. The first of those questions, where he's clearly speaking in his own voice, right? The ongoing line-by-line -line commentary of the text of Dionysus needs to expound on what Dionysus is saying and also gives a certain representation of Albert's own position in dialogue with Dionysus. And the disputed question is clearly Albert speaking in his own voice. That's extremely valuable for us. In the first of those disputed questions, toward the end of the first chapter of the commentary, Albert talks about the experience of Moses on Sinai and asks whether this is an instance of rapture. Right? It's the Augustinian notion of rapture, raptus, the idea that some biblical figures, especially Moses and Paul, could enjoy, could have enjoyed, did enjoy, rare, very brief moments of a direct vision of God. Albert thinks that John the Evangelist awesome He talks about this in the prologue of his commentary to St. John's Gospel. Albert does not consider Moses' experience on Sinai in the dark cloud an instance of rapture. Instead, he thinks that the Areopagite's description of Moses applies to contemplation in general, which might surprise us. Then he responds to an objection, which says, in the dark cloud, Moses seemed to lose the use of his lower powers, meaning his sense faculties, and that suggests rapture, right? If you haven't heard of this idea before, think of um, hagiographies that recount saints who seem to lose all contact with the world around them through their senses, right? There are stories of St. Catherine of Siena and others that recount this, something like this, but now in an even higher form, meaning there's a particular contemplative gift imparted, the direct vision of God for a brief moment. Albert answers that Moses still retained use of his sense powers, but that for contemplation in general, the soul pays no attention to them as it focuses its gaze upon God, he does that in text number nine, which I've skipped to move to the more interesting text, number 10. Quote, the unbounded light shuts off, clouded. Some of our cognitive powers directly, namely the intellective powers, which are capable of reaching out to it. But our other cognitive powers, those of the senses, it shuts off by indirect influence Inasmuch as the higher power moves the lower powers and a kind of token of higher things resulting in the lower powers, end of the quote. Our passage makes clear that Albert poses, perhaps as a commonly available gift, a type of momentary light, one that I would argue is distinct from habitual grace and habitual faith, complementary to it. A supernatural gift that gathers the intellect into a greater unity and simplicity a kind of divine aid to get away from phantasms, a grace that also indirectly brings calm to the sensible powers. Albert's intriguing description of the effects of uncircumscribed light fits well with a passage in chapter two of the same work where he talks about divine light causing natural, quote, non-vision, unquote, but I cannot go into that text here. 
We also have text number 11 on your sheet. I'm running out of time. And so I will skip forward to my conclusion. Concerning, to come back to two of the questions noted in the description of the colloquium. First, concerning the link between theological theory and spiritual practice. You can see that for Albert, the theologian can only progress in his discipline through a life of rigorous prayer, asceticism, the practice of the virtues, because an unpurified intellect clouded by poorly understood divine names, corrupted by illicit loves, and overly attached to phantasms and to sensible goods, cannot gaze correctly or well upon immaterial realities. Theory informs practice, but in fact is only made possible by the right practice being in place by the in, on the part of the theologian. Second, I've argued that the sources of Albert's account of contemplation are many and varied, meaning that we are looking at much more than the theological expression of a Platonic or, or Aristotelian philosophical categories, even though philosophy plays an evident and central role in the formulation of the expression of the teaching on contemplation and assent to contemplation. What we find in Albert's corpus is a complex synthesis of ancient philosophical and monastic spiritual practices, as well as an anthropology developed through an original reading of diverse Platonic and Aristotelian philosophical strands, and they're placed in conversation with scripture, which Albert prefers to read with a focus on the literal sense. An exact description of how these sources come together to bring to us Albert's original, yet in some ways very traditional theology of contemplation would require extensive work by a whole group of scholars. But I've given a few reasons to pursue the question of how a monastic tradition of asceticism and biblical exegesis as well, interact with Albert's preferred philosophical sources as he articulates a vision of contemplation. The fruit of his original synthesis derived from these sources is an elaborate metaphysical, exegetical and theological account of contemplation where a new theoretical justification is given for a fairly classical Christian vision of the nature of contemplation, all in view of his proposal on the function of negations, which gives a marvelous new and original insight on the mind's ascent to gaze upon the deus absconditus. Okay, Father. Um, our first question comes from Regis College in Toronto. Uh, Liam, you can ask your question now. Hi, Father. Thank you so much for such an engaging paper. I was curious about a comment you made near the beginning of your second section and which you repeated near the end of it, sort of about about the highest form of contemplative ascent being available to man within this life. And I was wondering, um, based on that, if such passages in Albert could signal that he had a more Eastern approach to him deification, which included the possibility of achieving theosis in this life, kind of like what we see some of the Orthodox saints and fathers yeah. talk about. So I, I assume you'll be coming tomorrow to hear Marcus Bested on Gregory of Ptolemus, right? Behind this account, and I couldn't read it here, 
you got a taste of this, of something similar in Father Denis Chardonnay, in the theology of the divine missions, because in fact, the Western, let's call it the Latin scholastic 13th century account of deification, that is uh, well advanced on the foundation of scripture and Augustine by Bonaventure Alexander of Hales, Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas is centered on the divine missions that come according to Aquinas at least, but Albert has a similar teaching here. I just know Thomas a little better because I teach him more often. There is a gift of created grace. This is also Albert certainly, which is part of those missions, huh? So uh, all of what I'm talking about, knowing God through faith, contemplating him in the divine names, in the context of a whole life of grace and charity, all of this presumes the reception of the divine missions, sanctifying grace that comes with the divine missions, which is, which is for Albert clearly a created grace. If you're interested, Albert has a very original doctrine of created grace and the missions, which he's developed in conversation with Dionysus and the Dionysian Theophanies. So I should say the East has a very positive influence on him. He didn't have the access to Maximus the Confessor that we would have wished he had. He doesn't have anything like uncreated energies, but he definitely has a rich doctrine of, of deification, which I think it centers on the missions and their fruit, their, their end term in created grace, which includes the, the wisdom of God and the charity of the spirit that is poured out. So I would encourage you to, to look there. I've treated some of it in my book, but others have also done uh, marvelous work on this uh, on this topic. It's, it's, it's an essential part of the background. Uh, so what, what Albert is doing it is, as he's commenting on Dionysus is he is benefiting from the fruits of his long work on the theology of, of the Trinity of Trinitarian action in the economy uh, and of grace that he's done in his earlier work, especially the sentences commentary. And you can see many traces of it, many echoes of it in his commentaries on Dionysus, which, which therefore really undergird all of this. You, know? you might say that your question, you're still looking at the same object that I am, but you're looking at it from a slightly different angle. And Albert looks at it from that angle as well. Um, mostly in other texts. Huh? So, la mia prima domanda in realtà era più un commento, perché dai testi che lei ha portato si vede molto chiaramente, secondo me, l'importanza che il commento di del Vangelo di Matteo ha avuto su Maestro Eckhart, che, ah. come lei ricordava, è un aspetto che mh, è ancora oggetto di ricerca, ma che sempre di più si mostra per la sua importanza. E la sua lezione conferma il ruolo che il commento al Vangelo di Matteo può aver avuto sull'opera di Maestro Eckhart. Posso tradurre per i, i nostri yeah, amici? Yeah. Sì, sì, okay. okay. Thank so you. this is Alessandra Beccarisi, she's speaking tomorrow, Maestro Eckhart, and uh, she did an essay on uh, Eckhart's relation to Albert recently in German, which I think has since been translated. Um, which helped me a great deal. And what she's found is that surprisingly, one of the key influences that may have come of Albert upon Eckhart, if it came and where it came, would be among other places, the commentary on Matthew. And what she's finding is confirmation of the importance of the Matthew commentary to understand the relation of Albert to Eckhart. We're trying to figure out where the German Rhineland mystic school and Eckhart came from, right? And we'll never have a full answer, but, but she's working on this. and. Uh, 
Oh, ok. Allora, le lascio la parola. La domanda è come mai, perché come mai il, il commento al Vangelo di Giovanni ha avuto questa importanza, secondo me, enorme? Giovanni, non di no, no, di Matteo, di Matteo. Matteo. Il commento di Matteo ha avuto un'importanza enorme su, su Eckhart. Per esempio, molte delle fonti, molto del Liber de Causis, almeno le fonti più importanti del Liber de Causis, vengono in realtà dal commento al Vangelo di Matteo. E anche il tema che lei ha affrontato, quindi questa ehm, liberarsi dai fantasmi, eh, per approdare ad una visione, ad una conoscenza, tra virgolette, statica, ritornare in se stessi, liberandosi, è uno dei concetti chiave in Meister Eckhart, proprio chiave, magari poi domani lo vedremo. Ma mi sfugge ancora il motivo perché questa opera di Alberto sia stata così importante. Questa è la prima domanda. La seconda okay, domanda... Posso tradurre e rispondere? Yeah, yeah, now. ok. Yeah, 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 thank you. Professor... In English, it's professor, not professoressa, right? Professor Beccarisi has discovered, you see, the Liber de Causis, the Book of Causes, is hugely important for Albert's own work and for the emergence of the so-called Albert School. I think we'll hear more about this from Paul Helmaya tomorrow. He's written on this. Beccarisi, Professor Beccarisi has discovered that, in fact, a number of key quotations of the Liber de Causis linked with Albert in Eckhart don't come from Albert's paraphrase or commentary on the Liber de Causes, but from the Liber de Causes as it pops up in the commentary on Matthew. Giusto? Giusto? Yes, yeah. Okay. Where does the importance of this come from? I will give you a hypothesis. Father Denis Chardonnance proposed to us, and this didn't surprise me that he would say this, that the richest theology of the divine missions in Aquinas's corpus may in fact be in the John commentary, i.e. not the Summa, not the De Potentia. It's an example, right? Biblical commentary is such a crucial genre which penetrates the life of the Dominican order. What Albert, on the one hand, Albert's commentary, I have to make a confession. I hope the Albert fans will not be uh, angry with me. You know, I'm a fan too, right? Albert's Matthew commentary is not as interesting as some other medieval commentaries. Probably, probably because they're preached, taught to the simple friars of the, of the convent of the priory. They're not from Paris, you see. So on the one hand, you often go through a very simple sort of exegesis. I don't, this is not a critique of Albert, okay? He's adjusting the level of the pedagogy. But the biblical commentary is just hugely important and we've underestimated it too long, not just in theology. The theologians, by the way, underestimated it the philosophers did too, and I think Paul Helmaier's recent essays have shown this as well. Uh, I don't have a better answer for you except to say the intuition of Father Terrell to recover the biblical Thomas should be carried over into Albert's studies, right? Sacra, mag, magister in sacra pagina. You know, it's a simple answer, right? 